Chapter 9 of The Side of the Angels by Basil King. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 9 As November and December passed and the new year came in, small happenings began to remind Thorley Masterman that he was soon to inherit money. It was a fact which he himself could scarcely credit. Perhaps because he was not imaginative, the condition of being thirty years of age continued to seem remote even when he was within six weeks of that goal. He was first impressed with the rapidity of his approach to it on a morning when he came late to breakfast, finding at his plate a long envelope, bearing in its upper left-hand corner the request that in the event of non-delivery it should be returned to the office of Darling and Darling at 27 Commonwealth Row. A glance, which he couldn't help reading, passed round the table as he took it up. It was not new to him that among the other members of the household, closely as they were united, there was a sense of vague injustice, because he was coming into money, and they were not. The communication was brief, stating no more than the fact that in view of the transfer of the estate which would take place a few weeks later, Mr. William Darling, the sole trustee, would be glad to see the heir on a day in the near future, to submit to him the list of investments and other properties that were to make up his inheritance. Thor saw his grandfather's money, so long a fairy prospect, as likely to become a matter of solid cash. The change in his position would be considerable. As yet, however, his position remained that of a son in his father's family, and, in obedience to what he knew was expected of him, he read the note aloud. Though there was an absence of comment, his stepmother, in passing him his doctor, murmured caressingly, "'Dear old Thor!' "'Dear old Thor!' Claude mimicked, will soon be able to do everything he pleases. Mrs. Masterman smiled. It was her mission to conciliate. And what will that be? I know what it won't be, Claude said scornfully. It won't be anything that has to do with a pretty girl. Thor flushed. It was one of the minutes at which Claude's taunts gave him all he could do to contain himself. As far as his younger brother was concerned, he meant well by him. It had always been his intention that his first use of Grandpa Thorley's money should be in supplementing Claude's meagre personal resources and helping him to keep on his feet. He could be patient with him, too, patient under all sorts of stinging jibes and double-edged compliments, patient for weeks, for months, patient right up to the minute when something touched him too keenly on the quick and his wrath broke out with a fury he knew to be dangerous. It was so dangerous as to make him afraid, afraid for Claude, and more afraid for himself. There had been youthful quarrels between them from which he had come away pale with terror, not at what he had done, but at what he might have done had he not maintained some measure of self-control. The memory of such occasions kept him quiet now, though the irony of Claude's speech cut so much deeper than anyone could suspect. "'Won't be anything that has to do with a pretty girl. Good God!' when he was beginning to feel his soul rent in the struggle between love and honour. It was like something sprung on him that had caught him unawares. There were days when the suffering was so keen that he wondered if there was no way of lawfully giving in. After all, he never asked Lois Willoughby to marry him. There had never been more between them than an unspoken intention in his mind which had somehow communicated itself to hers. But that was not a pledge. If he were to marry someone else, she couldn't reproach him by so much as a syllable. It was not often that he was tempted to reason thus, 
but Claude's sarcasm brought up the question more squarely than it had ever raised itself before. It was exactly the sort of subject on which, had it concerned anyone else, Thor would have turned for light to Lois herself. In being debarred from her counsels, he felt strangely at a loss. While he said to himself that after all these years there was but one thing for him to do, he was curious as to the view other people might take of such a situation. It was because of this need, and with Claude's sneer ringing in his heart, that later in the day he sprang the question on dear love. Dear love was the derelict English butler whom Thor had picked out of the gutter and put in charge of his office so that he might have another chance. He had been summoned into his master's presence to explain the subsidence and the contents of a bottle of cognac that Thor kept at the office for emergency cases, and had neglected to put under lock and key. "'That was a full bottle a month ago,' Thor declared, holding the accusing object up to the light. "'Was it, sir?' dear love asked dismally. He stood in his habitual attitude, his arms crossed on his stomach, his hands thrust monk-like into his sleeves. "'And I've only taken one glass out of it, the day that young fellow fell off his bicycle.' Dear love eyed the bottle piteously. "'Haven't you, sir? Perhaps you took more out that day than you thought.' But Thor broke in with what was really on his mind. "'Look here, dear love, what would you say to a man who is in love with one woman if he married another?' Dear love was so astonished as to be for a minute at a loss for speech. "'What did I say to him, sir? I say, what did he do it for? If it was—' "'Yes, dear love?' Thor encouraged. "'If it was f for what?' "'Well, sir, if he got money with her, like, well, that'd be one thing. But if he didn't, if it was a case in which money didn't matter?' Dear love shook his head. "'I never heard of no such case as that, sir.' Thor grew interested in the sheerly human aspects of the subject. Romance was so novel to him that he wondered if everyone came under its spell at some time, if there was no exception, not even dear love. He leaned across his desk, his hands clasped upon it. "'Now, dear love, suppose it was your own case, and—' "'Oh, me, sir, I'm no example to no one, not with Brightstone hanging on to me the way she does. I can't look friendly at so much as a kitten without Brightstone. Now here's the situation, dear love.' Thor interrupted, while the ex-butler listened, his head judicially inclined to one side. "'Suppose a man, a, a patient of mine, let us say, meant to marry one young lady, and let her see it. And suppose later he fell very much in love with another young lady?' "'He'd have to ease the first one off a bit, wouldn't he, sir?' "'You think he ought to?' "'I think he'd have to, sir, unless he wanted to be sued for breach.' "'It's the question of duty I'm thinking of, dear love.' "'Ain't it his duty to marry the one he's in love with, sir? "'Doesn't the good book say as our falling in love?' "'Dear love blushed becomingly. "'As our falling in love is the way God Almighty means to fertilise the earth with people? "'Doesn't the good book say that, sir?' "'Perhaps it does. "'I believe it's a kind of primitive subject it's likely to take up. "'So that there's that to be thought of, sir. "'They say the children not born of love matches ain't always strong.' He added, as he shuffled towards the door, "'We never had no little ones, Brightstone and me, only a very small one that died a few hours after it was born.' Thor was not convinced by this reasoning, but he was happier than before. Such expressions of opinion, which would probably be endorsed by nine people out of ten, assured him that he might follow the urging of his heart, and yet not be a dastard. 
He fell on stronger ground, therefore, when he talked with Fay one afternoon in the following week. "'Suppose my father doesn't renew the lease. What would happen to you?' Fay raised himself from the act of doing something to a head of lettuce which was unfolding its petals like a great green rose. His eyes had the visionary look that marked his inability to come down to the practical. "'Well, sir, I don't rightly know.' "'But you've thought of it, haven't you?' "'Not exactly thought of it. He said he wouldn't two or three times already, and then changed his mind.' "'Would it do you any good if he did? Aren't you fighting a losing battle, anyhow?' "'That's not wholly the way I judge, Dr. Thor. Neither the losing battle nor the winning one can be told from the balance sheet.' The success or failure of a man's work is chiefly in himself. Thor studied this, gazing down the level of soft verdure to the end of the greenhouse in which they stood. I can see how that might be in one way, but it's the way I mostly think of, sir. Every man has his own habit of mind, hasn't he? I agree with the great prophet Thomas Carlyle when he says— He brought out the words with a mild pomposity— when he says that a certain inarticulate self-consciousness dwells in us which only our works can render articulate. He speaks of the folly of the precept, Know thyself, till we've made it, Know what thou canst work at. I can work at this, Dr. Thor. I couldn't work at anything else. I know that making both ends meet is an important part of it, of course. But to you it isn't the most important part of it. Fay's eyes wandered to the other greenhouse, in which lettuce grew, to the hothouse full of flowers, and out over the forcing beds of violets. No, Dr. Thor, not the most important part of it to me. I've created all this. I love it. It's my life. It's myself. And if... And if my father doesn't renew the lease? Then I shall be done for. It won't be just going bankrupt in the money sense. It'll be everything else. Blasted he subjoined dreamily. I don't know what would happen to me after that. I'd be I'd be equal to committing crimes. Thor couldn't remember ever having seen tears on an elderly man's cheeks before. He took a turn down half the length of the greenhouse, and back again. Look here, Fay, he said in the tone of one making a resolution. Supposing my father would give me a lease of the place. You, Dr. Thor? Yes, me. Would you work it for me? Fay reflected long, while Thor watched the play of light and shadow over the mild, mobile face. "'It wouldn't be my own place any more, would it, sir?' "'No, I suppose it wouldn't, not strictly. But it would be the next best thing. It would be better than—' "'It would be better than being turned out.' He reflected further. "'Was you thinking of taking it over as an investment, sir?' Not having considered this side of his idea— Thor sought for a natural, spontaneous answer, and was not long in finding one. "'I want to be identified with the village industries, because I'm going into politics.' "'Who are you, sir? I didn't know you was that way inclined.' "'I'm not,' Thor explained, when they had moved from the greenhouse into the yard. "'I only feel that we people of the old stock hang out of politics too much, and that I ought to pitch in and make one more. "'So you get my idea, Fay.' It'll give me standing to pot a bit of property like this, even if it's only on lease. There was no need for further explanations. Fay consented, not cheerfully, but with a certain saddened and yet grateful resignation. 
of which the expression was cut short by a cheery ringing voice from the gateway. "'Hello, Mr. Fay. Hello, Dr. Thor. Wah, Maud, wah. Stand, will you? What are you thinking of?' The response to this greeting came from both men simultaneously, each making it according to his capacity for heartiness. "'Hello, Jim.' They emphasised the welcome by unconsciously advancing to meet the tall, stalwart young Irishman of the third generation on American soil, who came toward them with the long, loose limbs and swinging stride inherited from an ancestry bred to tramping the hills of Connemara. A pair of twinkling eyes, and a mouth that was always on the point of breaking into a smile when it was not actually smiling, tempered the peasant shrewdness of a face that got further softening and a touch of superiority from a carefully tended young moustache. Thor and Jim Breen had been on friendly terms ever since they were boys, but the case was not exceptional, since the latter was on similar terms with everyone in the village. From childhood upward he had been a local character, chiefly because of a breezy self-respect that was as free from self-consciousness as from self-importance. There was no one to whom he wasn't polite, but there had never been anyone of whom he was afraid. "'Hello, Mr. Marston. "'Hello, Dr. Hillary. "'Hello, Father Ryan. "'Hello, Dr. Sim,' had been his form of greeting, ever since he had begun swaggering around the village, with head up and face alert, at the age of five. No one had ever been found to resent this cheerful familiarity, not even Archie Masterman. As a man in whom friendliness was a primary instinct, Jim Breen never entered a trolley car, nor turned a street corner, without speaking or nodding to everyone he knew. Never did he visit a neighbouring town without calling on, or calling up, everyone he could claim as an acquaintance. He was always on hand for fires, for fights, for fallen horses, for first aid in accidents, for ball games, for the outings of Boy Scouts, and for village theatricals and dances. There were rumours that he was sometimes wild, but the wildness being confined to his incursions into the city, which generally took place after dark, it was not sufficiently in evidence to shock the home community. It was a matter of common knowledge that he used, in village phrase, to go with Rosie Fay, the breaking of the friendship being attributed by some of the well-informed to his reported wildness, and by others to differences in religion. As Thor had been absent in Europe during this episode, and was without the native suspicion that would have connected the two names, he took Jim's arrival pleasantly. Having finished his bit of business, which concerned an order for azaleas too large for his father to meet, and in which Mr. Fay might find it to his advantage to combine, Jim turned blithely towards Thor. "'Hear about the town meeting, Dr. Thor. What old Billy Taylor said about the new bridge. What do you think of that for nerve? Tell you what, there's some things in this town need clearing up.' The statement bringing out Thor's own intention to run as a candidate for office at the next election, Jim expressed his interest in the vernacular of the hour. "'What do you know about that?' Further discussion of politics, ending in Jim's pledging his support to his boyhood's friend, Thor shook hands with an encouraging sense of being embarked on a public career, and went forward to visit his patient in the house. His steps were arrested, however, by hearing Jim say, with casual light-heartedness, "'Rosie anywhere about, Mr. Fay?' The old man having nodded in the direction of the hothouse, Jim advanced almost to the door, where Thor, on looking over his shoulder, saw him pause. It was a curious pause for one so self-confident as the young Irishman, a pause like that of a man grown suddenly doubtful, timid, distrustful. His hand was actually on the latch, 
when, to Thor's surprise, he wheeled away, returning to his team, with head bent and stride slackened thoughtfully. By the time he had mounted the wagon, however, and begun to tug at Maud, he was whistling the popular air of the moment, with no more than a subdued note in his gaiety. End of chapter 9